American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. In the 1970s, American finance returns with a vengeance. If the post-war era had been defined by manufacturing, the era after 1970 is defined by finance, as well as insurance and real estate. What makes this happen is the end of the Bretton Woods system, a shift from an era of corporate and national stability to an era of volatility and uncertainty, both in currency markets around the world and the economy at home. The Bretton Woods system was a way to reestablish currency confidence after World War II. Capital was flowing from America to Europe to restore the rebuilding of that continent, and people were very concerned that this would cause haywire in the value, the relative value of currencies. This all worked for about 30 years, until the early 1970s, which for a bunch of different reasons, it began to fall apart. It was based on a fixed gold standard in which different currencies were pegged to that gold. The problem was that as Europe rebuilt, the value of the currencies in Europe and also in Japan to the dollar were changing. And so there was no way to hold that standard in place. And so in 1971, Nixon takes the US off the gold standard. He closes the gold window, and the Bretton Woods system comes to an end. In the next two years, the global financial system and the American financial system was remade. Currencies now could float against one another in a way they could not have done for the previous 30 years. This meant that there was more instability, especially in an era of multinational corporations, as American corporations of the post-war had set up production in other countries, in Europe and then in Asia. These new derivatives attempted to tame these currency movements at the level of the firm rather than at the level of the country. And so we shift, see a shift not only in currencies, but the very notion of whether or not a corporation is part of a country, a shift in the notion of corporate sovereignty. Take, for instance, the venerable bond rating agency Standard & Poor's. By the 1960s, this company was very, very marginal. It was hardly profitable at all. And the reason was, was because there weren't that many bonds to rate. Corporate bonds were largely stable, sovereign debt was largely stable, and there weren't many kinds of financial instruments to rate for investors. Pensions for all those strong post-war unions were defined benefit plans. And so none of this world in which we live today, in which we have to know about bonds and stocks for our 401ks, existed. In the aftermath of the conglomerate craze in the 70s and 80s, investment banks take on a new centrality. All those giant, sprawling conglomerates need to be cut up into their component parts and sold off. All of their debts need to be restructured. And this is exactly what investment banks do. And so financial practices that are at the margin of American finance in the 1950s and 60s, that are the province of wheelers and dealers in Texas, now are at the center of Wall Street practices. And all these old white shoe firms bound by social convention and propriety begin to look for an edge, begin to look for a cut of all of this action, that mergers and acquisition, M&A action that is driving Wall Street profit. 
The success of capitalism, as well as the new inequality, creates a giant pool of money at the top, desperate to be invested. This money needs to find an outlet, and so investment bankers and bond raiders and everybody wanted to have something to put that money into. When those bonds and stocks could be sold, money was made. And so the bond rating agencies of the 1970s, unlike those of the 1920s, charged not the people who bought the information, the investors, but the issuers. They charged where the money was. And this created an incentive for them to overlook improprieties that would have very important consequences in the long run in the financial crisis of 2008. Investment banks were also part of a broad process in which finance became an end in itself, a source of profit in and of itself, rather than as a way to help manufacturing. Investment banks in the post-war that sold stocks, that sold bonds to corporation, for corporations that would allow them to expand their manufacturing, now focused on just doing deals. Deals that made short-run profits over long-term productivity investments. This reflected a broad shift in the American economy. Manufacturing began to decline in profitability with the rise of globalization and containerization. Those cheap goods that are now available make all the factories seem slightly less valuable. This, you can see the antecedents of this actually beginning in the early 1960s. Take, for instance, General Electric, a company that we think of as making light bulbs. In the early 1960s, they begin to offer revolving credit to their customers as a way to promote the buying of their appliances and other kinds of goods. Now, what General Electric discovers is that this offering of a revolving credit is actually tremendously profitable. And throughout the 1960s, this division of General Electric, the General Electric Credit Corporation, that offers credit to customers grows at 17% a year. All the money that's put into this is money that is not put elsewhere into factories, producing goods for General Electric. And by the 1970s and 80s, General Electric transforms itself from a company that makes things to a company that begins to be a financial company as well. Finance is not a way to promote General Electric manufacturing. Finance is a way for General Electric to make money. So we can't think of finance and manufacturing as separate things. They're interlinked within American capitalism. But in understanding the shift of profitability from manufacturing to finance, even as that shift in profitability did not lead to long-term productivity, did not lead to job growth, did not lead to wage growth. We can understand what all of this means in an era of stagnating wages and rising inequality after 1970. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.